Okay, so the process that we're in at the moment is we, just to recap and bring everything together, is that we're focusing, believe it or not, on the simplest ways to present the gospel. But you know the way we do things to get to the simple answer, we have to go through a complicated process because we have to factor in everything that is relevant. We cannot, we want to, when we uh, present all those deep truths to other people, we present it to them as a gift because we want to serve people, we want to bless people. We want to avoid having agendas. There's only one agenda, and that is to invite and encourage other people to go into the deep things of God, to get to know Him personally, to draw close to Him and to draw near to Him. Okay. And um, so we know, and you've probably noticed, that most of our um, mandate to witness will be to... Christian believers, because we understand that the vast Christian world out there need to receive the gospel. So why? Because Satan has, over the last 2,000 years, implemented a very um, effective plan to steal the most important bits of the knowledge of God from the church. So, firstly, he has uh, done everything in his power to change what the true plan of God was in the mindset and in the doctrines of the world. God had a plan with creation for humanity in salvation from before he started creating the creation. With other words, the entire universe, the earth, and humanity. This the Bible makes very clear. So we see from the Bible that God's plan for salvation was in place before man was even created. Right. This is supposed to give us security, yet it's so complicated for humanity that they uh, have come up with all kinds of other storylines to understand God and His plan. So I want to take us back to some of the basic things that we are about. We are about certain things as a ministry, as a fellowship. By becoming part of this small fellowship and ministry, you have automatically become part of a pioneering work. There's a big highway, a broadway, that most people are traveling upon. It's an easy road, like most highways are. But the Bible tells us about this broad highway. It says it leads to destruction. Okay. Why can we say this? Because what they've done is they've changed God's plan. They have presented the world, or let us say by inspiration of Satan himself, the Christian church has presented the world 
with a different plan, not God's original plan as it is made known, made known to us in His Word. It's offending when we hear this for the first time, but it's just true. And a lot of people out there in the church world are sitting in church and they know something is wrong. The common sense and the Holy Spirit is trying to show them and tell them and warn them that things don't add up. But they can't quite pinpoint what is not adding up. Okay, so let's talk about what is not adding up. The entire plan. <laughs> See, Satan was very thorough. He basically made sure that everything in the understanding of um, what, what, do you, what, do we, what do we call general Christianity? Christianity. Okay, Christianity. So, <laughs> in the general Christian world, he has made sure that the understanding of the plan from the very beginning is not what the Bible actually says it is. And then he's changed the whole thing all the way through. Now we can understand why a lot of people don't understand the book of Revelation, because the Reve book of Revelation is not easy to understand. So by the time they come to the end of the Bible, they don't, they, they've actually given up on trying to understand most people. So they're waiting for somebody else to tell them. And this is where the problem comes in. Most of humanity has been convinced by Satan that they cannot understand the Word of God for themselves. It is too difficult, and they are waiting for somebody to explain it to them. And of course, Satan has a lot of volunteers. He's going to offer them fame, the respect of the world, <coughs> favor, fortune, and so there's a lot of volunteers for that job. And so this is why we do things like this. So if we're going to go out there to witness, we have to go through a training process, an intense training process, because we've got to understand the Bible. We've got to understand the actual plan of God. Now we're going to quickly, just before we carry on with our actual Bible study, we're going to talk about the things that stand in our way when we are endeavoring to equip to become a witness. See, the world, the people around us, and the enemy is going to put pressure on us so that we get busy with our problems and we don't have time to pay attention to, this, to the actual witnessing task that we've been given. And later on, we're going to look at that again. We're not just on earth for no reason. If you are a son or a daughter of God, then there's a purpose for your life. We believe in predestination. And... Uh, we all know that it's not the easiest thing to figure out what God's purposes for your life is. You would expect that. You would ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he would just answer you. The Bible says that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
and He will put us through a refining process to teach us to diligently seek Him when it's not easy. Okay, so He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. But how long do you have to diligently seek Him before the reward starts coming? Pause and think about it. Because we think, Lord, I'm going to put a whole 15 minutes aside and I'm going to diligently seek you to find my destiny in life. After eight minutes, I have to wrestle back all my mental concentration because I start losing concentration. And I have this struggle. And then I last two minutes, I can concentrate again. And then I'm on it again. I'm going to find out what my destiny is. And then the 15 minutes is up and I go like, why have, I've diligently sought you. Why have you not rewarded me yet? And if he doesn't answer <clears throat> as quickly as we thought, then we just go do something else. Okay. Now, you might say, well, we've heard, we, we okay. Because we've been in discipleship for a while, you might say, well, we're not there anymore. Let's stop that thought process. The challenge is for us to identify where we are still in that cycle. Okay? Diligently seeking Him is the challenge the privilege, and our next season. Because the moment that you st we start looking at and working on how to witness, how to share the gospel, it means that you have just volunteered your entire day and night. Mm -hmm. At least. Now, it's easy to volunteer it, to actually do it. Something else. So... I just want to backtrack to the process that we have been following. We start the process by winning time in our thoughts. The more time we can win back, the more time we're going to spend on diligently seeking the Lord. So in the beginning we say, I'm going to diligently seek the Lord for 15 minutes. It ends up being five and a half minutes of actual diligence seeking. The rest we're just trying to concentrate. So we would like to increase our 15 minutes to 20 minutes, and out of the 20 minutes, increase the time we're actually diligently seeking into at least 10 minutes. Those are the goals we set for ourselves. Okay. Now, I don't mean in any way to ridicule our efforts. It's a reality. Can we acknowledge the fact? that the ones, those of us that have been in this process, we have not succeeded yet. I'm not saying we failed. There's no condemnation. But we cannot afford to slack down and, and think that we're doing, that we've achieved our goal. We are going to say we've achieved our goals when we've achieved our goals, not before. Make sense? Okay, so Johannes, on an average day, and this is not a rhetorical question you can answer. <laughs> on an average day, 
What percentage would you say your attention is focused on the Lord? 10%? I think, thank you for being honest. We'd all love to say it was 50% or 60%. <laughs> and so we're going to start our teaching again at that place today. A big part of our process is learning to be honest with ourselves. Because mm -hmm. we are going to win the time back, bit by bit, minute by minute. Okay? Now, we've got to just quickly acknowledge this, that the time that we spend talking to God about us, <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> it's not diligently seeking. <laughs> Complaining to the Lord, worrying to the Lord, that's again on, because I'm on Facebook more these days, again I saw someone saying this this week, take your things to the Lord and leave it there. Man, I wish people could just think about what they're saying. Okay? So, it's, it's good to, to take our concerns to the Lord, but we go to Him for solutions. We go to Him for wisdom. We go to Him for guidance, for repentance. Okay, so we're going to carry on now. We want to again establish this. Anything that's uncomfortable, discomfort in your life, is going to be approached with an attitude of repentance. The answer to every discomfort is repentance. Repentance. Repentance is no one else's fault except yours. Repentance. And what's repentance? We decide on the proper action to correct what we have done in the past, because obviously what we have done in the past led us to a place of discomfort. So correction is needed. There we call correction repentance. Repentance isn't repenting from the sin, it's repenting back to the character, the person of God. We know how to repent through His Word. These are basic stuff. We're just looking at the basic stuff again. Repentance. So, the moment that you think, I want your heart, your spirit starts reaching out to the Lord and say, to say, Lord, help me, show me, answer me. This, there's got to be a, a thing that happens in your mind that says, how should I repent? That's what we're seeking the Lord for. Because, let's be honest, sometimes we want to pray and we're expecting Him to say, oh, shame. He's never going to say that to you. He's merciful, but He's not going to pity you, ever. Okay. So now we can just quickly have a look at when we are witnessing to others, we will encounter their felt need. So every person that you encounter, deep inside of them, actually very shallow inside of them, they're going to want you to say shame to them in some way. They want to either present you with what they think they have to offer, and they want to say, you to say, that's very good. Yeah. But just be, just like on par with that, 
basic need to be acknowledged and valued is the need to be and the need for sympathy. It's everybody that you, and you want to avoid those things in witnessing. You want to acknowledge the felt need. But our purpose is truth, the Word of God. Helping someone to come to the revelation of the person of God. Pure light, pure truth. So we never offer them um, scriptural or good ideas to try and soothe their pain. We offer them guidance in repentance. Didn't they teach us in church that we're supposed to encourage people? Encourage them to repent. The idea of encouragement out there is God loves you, mm. all that stuff, okay? God does love His children. The way He loves us is He's given us truth, and then He's going to, by His Spirit, lead us into the truth so that our... Pain and suffering can end. Yeah. Okay. Now, we're going to go to... I felt that we needed to just put that out there, Okay. When you start feeling that God isn't treating you fairly, that's pride, a rebellion. Can we avoid that? Okay. God knows what He's doing at all times. Let's quickly recap. Okay, so, whenever you are placed in a position by the Holy Spirit and He will unction you, ask you, please say something to this person. He's basically asking you, please say something about me, <laughs> not me, the Holy Spirit, to the person. So, <laughs> no matter what the situation, what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do is say something about Him to this person. It's got to be in the context of His Word, His plan. That's why we build a framework on the inside that we can work according to, so that we don't start painting outside of the lines that He has created for us. Mm. And whenever you speak to anybody out there, you know, if we know how a person's brain works, we can talk to them. And we don't get intimidated. So it doesn't matter who you're talking to. This is what they've got in their minds, in their heads. Okay. They've got this. Linear timeline. Satan's wonderful invention. So God created the heavens and the earth, and Satan decided my answer to that problem is, I'm going to create a linear timeline. So while God was creating biodiversity, Satan came up with this. Okay. Linear timeline is, everybody knows, beginning, the cross somewhere, after 4,000 years, 2,000 years, end. Church. Old Testament, don't worry about it. That's what the church gave humanity. So here, there's a story about a guy called Samson. All you have to know about him, he was strong, then he wasn't, then he's dead. 
Okay. Then <laughs> there was the ark. There was a lot of people. Then there was rain. Then they were dead. And the sea opened up with Moses. Then the Israelites came out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness. And then they were dead. And this is the Old Testament. The old dead, don't worry about it. But this is the linear timeline that Jesus gave us. Because Satan wants us to have our focus on this. And we're not saying that the cross is not central to all things. The cross is just not central to the timeline. Okay. And this is where we are focusing on. Because every Christian that you're going to want to witness to has their focal point on the cross in our timeline, in our reality, and they have kept. You literally can picture every Christian believer that's ever lived hanging on to the cross from the bottom, trying to pull it down into our world and keeping it from actually going into the place where it's supposed to be. So what happened on the cross? The Lord died and then He stepped into the presence of the Almighty in the realm, the kingdom of heaven, and He brought His sacrifice into the actual throne room. So when He died on the cross, He did not go down into... How people, humanity believes that He went down when He died into hell. If, he, if the Lord walked into hell... Hell would have been changed into heaven. Of course, it would have been a non-event because no one's there yet. <laughs> it's an empty place. Like Why would he go there? Here. Hello? <laughs> so why are we recapping on this? Because we've got to understand what's happening in the mind of every single Christian that you encounter. They have been filled with all the wrong information. A picture has been painted to them by Satan himself through the mouths of duomenes and uh, bishops and priests. Why am I being so disrespectful? Why would we want to respect Satan's plan? The Word of God doesn't say this. So this is what happened. The Lord Yahushua died on the cross in our timeline. But if we were going to be created in the image and the likeness of God, who is the image and likeness of God? Can you read for us? So what we're doing is I want to just uh, remind us of certain pictures, images, that whenever we approach someone, we're in a position where we need to Witness to someone, there's, there's a few main pictures that we have to have very clear in our minds. Yes. Okay, so 2 Corinthians, we read this last week. Chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, I'm going to pick it up. The, the gospel of the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God. And it says the same thing in Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 2. Okay, so it says that Yahushua, the Messiah, is the image of God. Now, if we were created in His image and His likeness, and Yahweh Himself is spirit and has no form. Did you know that Yahweh Himself is spirit and has no form? 
Okay, so we were created in His image and His likeness, and Yahushua becomes and is His perfect image and likeness. So you see, this is how it works. Remember this, whenever you speak to somebody. They have kept the cross here on earth. And they want to believe from here up to God in heaven somewhere up there. They want to relate to Him somewhere there. That's where most people are at. He died on the cross. He was perfected. The moment that He brought His perfect sacrifice and it was accepted by God the Father, He became all things he became all things. All things consist in Him. Okay, And then the Bible says all things were created by Him and for Him. But if He only became the author of salvation when He had perfected obedience through His suffering, that's what the Bible says, then it means that He first had to do this outside of time. Then... Out of that perfect image and likeness, the perfection that he, the perfection of his obedience that he achieved through his suffering and his sacrifice, his victory in resurrection, out of that he creates man. And that is why outside of time is so important. Now, what did we say? When we want to share the gospel with somebody, we want to connect the end of the Bible with the beginning of the Bible, because Yahushua introduces himself to us as the beginning and the end. And we want to reveal to a person, we want to bend their timeline into a circle. If we can bend their timeline into a circle, we can destroy the basis on which they've been taught the Bible, the basis on which they think. And then we can start helping them to see that most of their doctrine is erroneous. Can we say that most of their doctrine is erroneous? We have proved that most of their doctrine is erroneous. Why? Because it's based on a basic template. And the template is not God's plan. Okay. So... Whenever, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, my mom, whenever she made a stew or something, she would thicken the sauce with. No, not pesto. Um, no, no these are olden days. Cake flour. Cake flour. Did anybody else's mom's thicken the sauce with cake flour? Yeah, olden days, you way too young. Yeah. So just after I moved out of the house, got a little confused. I knew she used flour. So I put millimeal into my stew. Didn't we once accidentally try to fry a fish and then you ended up using millimeal instead of... Yeah, didn't. No good. And it was in that day. Remember the days when you couldn't get white... Um, millimeal, it was this yellow millimeal. This, so that was what I used. It was a, I couldn't eat the stew. <laughs> There's no reason whatsoever why I told that story. Um, no, there is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, 
why am I saying this? If you have a template that's different, it doesn't matter what you do with the recipe, you can't get it right later on. You have to have the start right. Okay, so now. It's from this basis that we have established every single aspect of discipleship mm -hmm. in our lives. And what would this cause? What is the result of this? It means that everything, everything that we understand about the Word of God is in some way different from everything that the rest of the Christian world out there believe. And that is why we have a witness. Because we're right. Until somebody proves us wrong, we have to assume that we're right. I can prove their doctrine wrong in my sleep. I didn't even have to wake up anymore to do that. But now, over all these years, nobody has actually achieved to even prove even one of our basic fundamental doctrines wrong. They can't. So what am I saying? You've got to keep in mind that everything the person that you're talking to believes is in some way bent out of shape. Either completely wrong or at least partially incorrect. Why is this important to understand? Because when we start talking to other Christians, it's very easy for us to think that they know what we're talking about. When you say grace, mm -hmm. when you use the word grace, okay. what they think you're saying is not the same as what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Faith, righteousness, all the basic stuff. So we have a huge task. Okay. And this is why we need to have our structure right. We, if we don't have a structure built into our thinking, then we'll get confused. Because that guy's got another structure in his, in his mind. Okay? Does it make sense? No. Let's get back to 2 Corinthians, but I think we're going we're gonna to do Melchizedek for us first. We're going to look at Melchizedek, because this is one of the anchoring points for us in our thinking. Melchizedek is a huge key that the Lord put in the Bible for us. Okay, so always remember, we want to bend their timeline. Their timeline is that the Old Testament is a different covenant, a different time from the New Covenant. That everybody in the Old Testament was under the Old Covenant. Okay, Richard, you, you, you knew you, so we can use you as a guinea pig. Okay, did you ever know in all your years of church that, do you know about the New Covenant and Old Covenant? Did you know that King David was New Covenant? Do you ever think about it? Did you think that it was Old Covenant? And Abraham? And Moses? And Elijah? 
we're going to show you the all new covenant. Now you might say, how the heck is that possible? We're going to show you. This, can, okay, just think about it quickly. If it's true that they were not old covenant but new covenant, how does that change your Bible? It would significantly change the way we think about the Bible, right? Significantly. Abel. Remember Abel in the Bible? What if I told you it was New Covenant? <laughs> but isn't it supposed to be a New Covenant? See, go out there and ask questions, so when did the covenants exactly change? Was it when he died on the cross? Was it when he was resurrected? Because, see, Yahushua is born and he still has to keep the law. Was he Old Covenant or New Covenant? <laughs> Problem. See how uh, there's a general way of thinking out there. Christian world all this all believes this. How dare can it all be wrong? when the Bible actually very clearly tells us that it doesn't work that way. And you know why this has happened? Because Christians don't know their Bibles. They read it, but they read what people told them to read. And when they see something that doesn't fit with what they've been taught, they just skip over it because they think they're reading it wrong. Well, they can't understand it, so it's fine. They don't have to understand it. So, let's... So that's why, for each and every one of us, it's vital that we understand Melchizedek. Okay, extremely important. So let's go into it. Will you show us Melchizedek, please? Did we change seats somehow? While you're paging, please remember, please remember, when we're talking to people, it's good news. Even if you're talking to a hard-headed, stiff-necked Christian, we love them. And we love the truth. This is exciting stuff. The person is probably in church because they wanted to know the truth. That's probably why they're there. And because they're so scared and confused, they go into self-righteousness and pride. Okay? We want to bring the good news, so we bring it with understanding. Little bits, okay? Little bits. Show them one thing, then show them another thing. What they do with it is between them and the Lord. Okay, now, let's okay. go for it. So, um, many of you have been walking this road for a while, so you've probably heard the teaching on Melchizedek before. But today we're going to look at it from scratch. So completely new. Again, assume you know nothing. Don't know how he fits in, who he is, and we're going to do it completely anew, afresh, 
and we're going to look at just what the scripture is saying. So not what we think we know, not what we think it should be saying, not what we think, you know, where it should fit in and what it should mean, just like what the words are saying. Okay. Can we do a quick test? I like this. We have the opportunity. Sorry. Elise, you've been in church a while. What do you know about Melchizedek? Nothing. Have you ever heard anything said about him? No. No? You? Really? Oh, well, interesting. Then we can do this. I'll remind you where you might know him from. The only time the Christian world ever looked to Melchizedek is because they use it to justify tithing. There's this one short sentence that says, and he brought a tithe, he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Abraham gave a tithe to And this is what they use it for. Okay. When it is one of the most glorious, amazing things in the Bible. Let's look at it. Okay. So, for those who've never heard of Melchizedek, obviously you won't know the answer to this. But... Um, if we had to, for those who've heard of Melchizedek before, uh, we're going to read Psalm 110 because he, it's mentioned in here. Who else, if you want to just venture, where else is Melchizedek mentioned that we know of? It's not rhetorical, you can answer. Yes. Uh, Hebrews. In Hebrews? Yeah. yeah. Hebrews. And? In Genesis. And that's it. Three places in the Bible. Genesis, Psalm 110, and Hebrews. And it's one of the biggest mysteries, and we're going to discover it today. Okay, let's read from verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers on the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Interesting song. And clearly, if we just if we're not focusing on the Melchizedek scripture at this moment. I was going to say clearly, but it might not be clear to everyone. Is it clear to everyone that he's prophesying about the end of time when the Lord returns, the Lord of hosts, to execute judgment and even reign? Okay, but now, verse 4 then is very interesting that King David can actually prophesy this, that he says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek especially considering that there's only three mentioned places in the Bible, one of which is not going to be written for another 
1,500 years. So he's left with his own reference, and then that in Genesis, that of Genesis. But keep that in mind, we're going to come back to that, but this is vital. This is vital in understanding why Melchizedek is so important. Okay, now let's go to the first reference, and this is in Genesis chapter 14. Just to make sure everybody is hearing what Nadia is saying. Not that she didn't say it perfectly, but that's why we both teach. We witness twice. Here's King David. Okay. There's no internet. Oh, okay, wait. Maybe I can just mention, but I don't want to mention this now. I want to get back to it later. Okay, just, just <laughs> form the picture. Here he is, and he's talking about Melchizedek. Just get it. No, the New Testament doesn't exist, okay? Keep that picture, okay? Okay. So, chapter 14, Genesis. And we're going to read from verse 18, but let me just give some context. So, Abraham is traveling through the wilderness with his family and his servants and his teens and everything. And him and Lot have separated already. Then... A while away from where he is camped at this stage, there is an ongoing war between a group of kings. So there's a group of four kings, they've kind of merged together, and a group of five kings. And their armies, and they make war with each other because they don't like the rulership, blah, blah, blah. And then the four kings have victory over the five kings. And included in the five kings and their kingdoms is Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot is somewhere in there. So Lot is carried away with all the people as slaves um, in the victory of the four kings over the five kings. And because Lot is obviously related to Abraham, someone escapes, comes to Abraham and says, Lot has been taken along with everyone else. So Abraham rallies up his 318 trained servants, they're trained for war, and in the middle of the night, they venture out and slaughter these victorious five kings and their armies in the middle of the night and now he's coming back in victory he saves lot but now also all the people that were taken as slaves all the animals all the treasures that has been taken that would have been the booty for the the kings now abram's coming with all of that and as he's now marching back to his camp with all of these people and the animals and all the treasures, this is where we see where he encounters Melchizedek. So let's read from verse 18. Well, let's read from verse 17 just so you can kind of see how out of the blue this happens. It says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavuah, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of this king, and the kings <laughs> were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And it's at that little last sentence that the church goes, see, tithing is good. It's a bit Obviously, not really relevant to the story. <laughs> so, 
the question should be popping up. Who, who is he? Because it's just, here he is, he's just appeared, he brings out bread and wine. Where did he bring it from? We don't know. And then the question should also be posed, and this would be a very valid question. It says he's priest of God Most High. As far as we know, Abraham is the only believer that's walking the earth on this, at this stage, in this time. Let's give some context to that. Abraham. Okay, let's pause and look at Abraham. So the story goes like this. We go all the way back to Noah. Remember what happened? Sin increased on the earth to such a degree that God regretted creating man. And so God decides to judge the earth. There's only one man that finds favor in God's sight. One righteous man that finds grace in God's eyes. Noah. God commands Noah to build an ark. Because of Noah's obedience, his three sons, their wives, Noah and his wife, they are saved. Out of all the people that live on earth, they are the only ones saved. There's a flood. Everything on earth is destroyed. Every other human being is killed. They come out of the ark and they start to multiply. Okay. So you had three sons, remember? Okay. Ham, he transgresses against Noah and against the ways of God. And Noah curses Ham's first son, firstborn son, Canaan. That bloodline becomes a cursed bloodline. So all of the people on earth... It's very significant and important to understand with this whole thing globally of Black Lives Matter. We all come from one man, Noah, and he had three sons. We all come from the same bloodlines, right? We are all Noah's grandchildren. That's who we are, okay? But there's a split that happens. There's three, three sons and they all have bloodlines. Then what happens is, as they multiply, there's a guy called Nimrod, one of the cursed bloodline. He gathers all the people that exist on earth under him. He declares himself king over them, and he builds a city called Babel. Right? Remember the story of Babel? Okay, it's very important to understand. And from there, they start forgetting about God. So there's this amazing arc of the flood, they come out knowing God, and it doesn't take them very long. They forget about God again. It gets so bad that everybody's forgotten about God. As far as we know out of the Bible, everyone's forgotten about God. When God calls Abraham, Abraham's father is an idol maker. Okay, And God calls Abraham. Now, when God reveals himself to Abraham, listen very carefully. We've got to get the storyline right. These are important facts. When God calls Abraham, and Abraham gets to know that God exists, Abraham is now the only person on earth that knows God. Again. So when Noah came out of the ark, it was only Noah and to some degree his sons. We don't know how much they knew about God. Only Noah really knew God. Now we're back, after a few generations, we're back at a place where only Abraham knows God. 
Do we get it? There was one person on earth that knew God. Now Abraham goes and he makes wars against the kings. He comes into a valley and here he meets a high priest of God. How the heck is that possible? When is the priesthood given? Can you pick it up there? The story. Go ahead. Okay. Just to get context, do you understand what we're looking at when we look at Melchizedek? Okay. Okay, so firstly, if we just look at how Abraham was called and in what way and for what purpose, then surely it could have if we just think through the process logically, wouldn't it have if there was a priest of God, wouldn't it have made more sense for God to call the priest to walk out this road of faith, since he was already serving God, either rather than calling the son of an idol maker? Right? That would have made more sense. <laughs> but now, also if we think of the timeline, we understand that Abraham's grandchildren are going to go into Egypt and they're going to stay there for 400 years. Then they're going to come back out. And only once they're in the wilderness, God is going to instruct them on how to build the tabernacle. He's going to call Levi as the priesthood. And then he's going to give them the law on Mount Sinai. Backtrack around about 430 years. Here we are. No tabernacle. No Moses. No priesthood. No law. And yet, out comes priest of God Most High, and he's going to serve Abraham. Now, if there was a high priest, it would mean that it's useless to have a priest if there's no other believers. You can't just have one guy, and he's also the high priest, and he's the only... Okay, does make sense. So if Melchizedek, if we thought Melchizedek for a moment, if we for a moment considered that he was a human high priest, then it would mean there would have to be other believers. There would also be, there would have to be a place for him, and there would have to be a law of some sort so that he knows how to serve God. If there's no defined law, there's no given instructions from God, where is he serving and how is he serving him? Okay, pause. Can you see the possibilities? Just when talking to any person about the Bible, can you see the possibilities how to start a interesting conversation about the storyline, just out of this story. You talk to any question, you go like, think about it. If he was a priest and there was other believers, it means there has to be another Bible somewhere for another group of people that's not the Israelites. You get them thinking, get them asking questions. Okay. So we're looking at a problem in the Bible. It's like there's a high priest that comes out to Abraham. Now we've got to decide, is it possible that he was a human high priest? Is it possible? That's the question. Okay, continue from there. Okay. Now, we're going to go to the third reference of Melchizedek in the Bible, which is in the book of Hebrews. Now before we page there, we're paging. <laughs> We're going to reminisce, recall, remember, remind ourselves what the book of Hebrews is about. When you're going to say what you serve to me. No, that's like, later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I'm 
I know, I know. I've watched this movie before. to the Hebrew church. Um, to some of us, it is quite evident that, okay, so let me explain how it worked. So initially, it was acknowledged that the, letter, that the letter was written by the Apostle Paul. Later on, there came some debate about, but was it Paul, because he doesn't introduce himself, and usually introduces himself, so we're going to assume it's maybe not Paul. It's definitely Paul. Okay? He's the only guy with the kind of authority and the kind of confidence to write that kind of letter to the church in Jerusalem. Okay. To explain that. Right. But now you're gonna, the, okay. the book of Hebrews. But now you're going to explain what it's about. Yes. I've got to say something too. So, That's what I was going to do right okay, now. Okay, you're going to do that. The book of Hebrews. Somebody somewhere in a different place wrote a letter that was taken to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, Israel, is where the Jews live. They're the only ones that had the Bible. What we know is the Old Testament. They're the only nation on earth that had this. Now, this is also the place where Yahushua walked, where he ministered, where he died, where the church started. And then, a few years later, after he died and was raised and went up to heaven, someone from another place writes a letter to the people in Jerusalem, the church there where Christianity started, to tell them what the gospel was about. Just to understand how important the book of Hebrews is. Continue. I'll keep quiet now. Okay, so that's what the book of Hebrews is <laughs> But more specifically, what we are going to consider today is that <clears throat> Paul takes, and I'm going to just go with Paul, takes quite, he takes his time in explaining to them specifically that the priesthood as they know it and as they understand it has been changed and by extent that the law has been changed. This sounds like a, this might sound like a minor obvious thing to us now, but the context is important. So he's writing, like you said, to the church in Jerusalem. This is the origin of Christianity as we know it today. Okay, And even though they are followers of the way, by heritage they are still, most of them are still Jews. Okay, So by heritage they are still serving some form of the law and keeping the law. Not because they are under the law, but because they are Jews by bloodline. So they are still bound to the rituals. Okay. At that stage, 
The temple is still there, still exists. The, Le the Levitical priesthood is still in full swing. There's still a high priest. They're still doing the Day of Atonement. They're still keeping the feast, still going through all the motions. We know that when Yahushua is crucified, when he dies, that the veil is torn and the flame does go out, but the temple is still there. Later on, the temple is going to be destroyed. And when the temple is destroyed, we understand that puts the priesthood in a difficult position because they can't keep any of the feasts the way that it was instructed. So there's an end to the priesthood the way it was uh, commanded by God. Because think about it, if they don't have a holy of holies, what is the priesthood doing? Okay. But that's later on. At the time when this letter is written to the Hebrew church, the Levitical priesthood is still in full swing and the temple is still there. Now Paul writes them a letter saying, um, don't you know, the priesthood has actually changed. And because the priesthood has changed, that means that the law has changed. And he's encouraging them and writing to them and saying, you can't really understand why they insist to still remain under the old priesthood and the old law because the new is so much better. And he takes his time in explaining to them not only that it's changed, but that this new law, this new priesthood is much better, much greater promises, and he's encouraging them to move ahead, to run along, to move into these exciting, new, fulfilled promises of God. Okay, and so this is important when we look at Melchizedek. So let's go to Hebrews. Can you understand why... They are a little bit upset with Paul. Okay, just uh, uh, just from because we're so used to the picture. Would this picture make sense to you? Imagine those days in Israel and especially in Jerusalem. On a Sabbath day, on a Saturday, nobody would dare do any work. Even the Romans that are ruling over them. They respect this. They stay out of the way on the Saturday. If it's, if it's the, the Sabbath day, every single Jew in all of Israel would do what they needed to do on a Sabbath day, not to get kicked out of the synagogue. So you've got an entire nation. We can't even fathom it today. You've got a, 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 a geographical area with air, all the people in it honoring. They might not still be honoring the Lord the way that God intended it, but they do, they're going through the motions. Mm. If it's the feast days, they will sacrifice all the animals and do all the things that they're supposed to do. I want us to get this picture clear. An entire nation in agreement. And here comes a letter written <laughs> to the church in, it's, it's guys like James and those guys. Peter, John, they're there. They're the guys in Jerusalem. And there's a guy that writes a letter to the church in Jerusalem telling them, why don't you understand the priesthood has changed? It's no more. And they're going like, but who's that guy then <laughs> bringing the sacrifice to the altar? This is how big this is. It's huge. And the base, everything, he bases this on Melchizedek. That's why it's so important. 
And in today's church, people hardly even know that Melchizedek existed. How effective has Satan been? Very effective. Okay. So just, I want us to grasp the impact. These are tools that we use when speaking to, to Christians. We can't impress them with the big, deep revelations. We've got to start with these kind of details. Mm. Do you understand that a letter arrives in Jerusalem, in Israel, when the temple is still there, the priests are still doing their things, the feasts are still being kept, the Sabbath is still being kept. And somebody <laughs> wrote them, don't you know the priesthood have changed? The law has changed? That's the letter we read when we read the letter, the book in the Bible called Hebrews. I'm hoping that you guys realize that. When was the crucifixion? After. So the. Pardon? When was the crucifixion in relation to? In relation to the letter. So this would be maybe no more than 40 years, maybe 25, 30 years. Can't be more. Yeah. Can't be more than that when this letter was written originally. So after this letter only is the, the temple destroyed. For the Jews, nothing changed with the crucifixion. So what happens on the day of the crucifixion, when it goes dark and there's the earthquake and the graves open, we know from, you've got to understand that from our perspective, mm. from our written record, it tells us that the, the um, veil that led to the Holy of Holies in the temple, that was torn open. Now, so the wind that goes through, and from that moment on, there's no record of the Ark of the Covenant ever being mentioned or seen again. So whether it was gone before or not is not historically verifiable, but we know that they were still going into the Holy of Holies. Everything was continuing as usual until the veil was torn. And if the Holy of Holies was still the Holy of Holies, the presence of God was in the in the present then with the torn veil his judgment would break out over all the city which it didn't we've got to understand the significance of that moment it says that the rock was split in two that's the altar where so they brought you, all their sacrifices that's right so what happens is the moment that Yahushua breathes his last breath and at the moment it goes dark and there's the earthquake that's the moment outside of time that's why outside of time is so important that's the moment outside of time that all of judgment, that's the white throne judgment taking place. Bec why is it important that the altar is, is cracked in two? Because now there can never be any sacrifice for sin again. No sacrifice. You can't sacrifice go into the Holy of Holies because that's been... So in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant with the presence of God, the glory cloud above the Ark of the Covenant. Even the high priest could, go, if he went in and he wasn't cleansed and acceptable in the sight of God, he fell down dead. Now, imagine the moment after the darkness came and the shaking and the priest ran into the temple. There's no Ark of the Covenant. 
the also flame the that was on the menorah, yeah. burning on the menorah. There's a flame that was lit in the days of the wilderness, so, and they kept yeah. it alive. That was the picture of the Holy yeah. Spirit. So what they would do is there were seven candles, lights, where the oil was going, and then every time they had to refill, they would uh, kill six of the seven lights, but one would always remain burning, and then redistribute so it was in essence the same flame that traveled from the their days in the wilderness the essence of the flame the source of the flame never went out ever until the day of the crucifixion now imagine the priests are standing there the altar is broken into the flame on the menorah is out it's been burning since the days of moses the Veil is torn and the Ark of the Covenant is gone. God himself, and that day, ended the priesthood. But they're going to now pretend. They're going to carry on. And this is the empty shell of religion. This is the emptiness of religion that we are sent to earth in our generation to minister against. Because that's what Christianity is doing. Also remember... Uh, it says that their eyes were closed and their ears were closed. And this is part of the reason why they crucified the Lord is because they were convinced that he was blaspheming and saying that he was the Messiah. And so remember to them, him dying was just a sinful man dying on a cross. It wouldn't have been a big event for them. He was a nuisance that they got rid of. Mm. So... So now we see the priesthood continuing on the next, the next week. They started continuing as if nothing had changed. So they're going to maintain a lie. There's no Ark of the Covenant. The menorah flame had gone out. And for those who haven't heard this in teachings, this is why on the day of Pentecost, the tongues of fire come upon the heads of the believers. Because now the flame that used to burn on the menorah, we become the menorah. You are the candle. So it says in the book of Revelation that he walks among the seven lampstands, and that's the church. And that's why we become his temple, and we become the lampstand, and the flames are lit on us. That's why madness in the water, that's why you would have a recollection of a fire ripping through your system uh, through your 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 person and uh, cleansing everything because now that holy fire is going to burn in your life so that's why the tongues of fire came on the Pentecost this is extremely important so they would carry on with a lie what do we what do we what do we look at when we look at Christ, um, not Christ, uh, religion they have all the same aspects they have the rituals that would be the same as the priest would come back and carry on trying to bring the sacrifices when the actual tabernacle of the, the altar has been cracked in two. It's no longer, God is no longer going to accept any of it. So they have the rituals. The Ark of the Covenant contained the original tablets of the law. It's now taken from earth. The law is fulfilled. It's no longer on earth. Um, 
So he fulfilled all these things. So we'll go into what religion looks like today that's the same as the false priesthood that continued after this. Okay, but now, it's very important to have this picture etched into your structure when talking to Christians, because they don't know any of this stuff. Okay, you go talk to any pastor in interest, they don't know this stuff. You know it. So you can, you can, you have keys to unlock for them. Does that make sense? Okay, now. Whenever we want to witness to Christians, we've got to understand, this is the perspective they've got. They literally think they know what's happening, but they only have this little idea of everything. So everything that we just told you, they don't know. And this gives us the opportunity to start conversations with them. Because we just want them to ask questions. But now, let's go to Mokis. Okay. okay. So, we're in Hebrews. We're going to read chapter 7. Um, but first, again, I just want to give some background to what he says just before. And this is quite important. So, in Genesis, we read that um, it says, priest of God most high. It doesn't necessarily use the word high priest but we read in the psalm and then it's quoted again throughout hebrews that the son of god yahushua is called as high priest in the order of melchizedek now if it says in the order of melchizedek uh, the same is said of levi so the high priest is usually called in the order of levi which means that levi was the original high priest and so we're going to look at that the the priesthood of Melchizedek would be in the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek was the original high priest in that order, in that priesthood. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, let's go to... Okay, let's do this. So let's go to chapter 5 of Hebrews first. We're going to read from verse 5. Don't get caught up in the details. I'm going to guide you through what you need to see. Okay. From verse 5. It says, Oh, actually, let's read from verse 3. Of Yes, verse 3. It says, Because of this, he is required, and this is the, the high priest in the order of Levi, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So the high priest is called. Now it says, So also Messiah did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who, now is back to the Son of God, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, so after his crucifixion, when he is perfected, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And this is where we want to go, verse 10 called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so the Son of God, after his perfection, is called by God, by the Father, as high priest, 
And now obviously he's going to live forever. So he's called by God as high priest forever and ever according to the order of Melchizedek. And now we're still sitting with this question, who is Melchizedek? Where did he come from? How does he fit in? How was he a priest without a law? What, where, who? Okay. And now we get to chapter 7 where Paul is going to explain to us who Melchizedek is. Okay. Chapter 7 of Hebrews verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. So Melchizedek, if you translate it, literally means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, because the word Salem comes from the word Shalom, which translated into English means peace, but we also know that the fulfilled covenant is known as the covenant of peace or the covenant of Shalom. So here we have Melchizedek, high priest, king of righteousness, king of Shalom, king of peace. And verse 3 really kind of seals it. It says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So Melchizedek, who meets Abraham in the Valley of the Kings, his name is King of Righteousness. He's known as the King of Peace. He has no genealogy, has no father or mother, which means he wasn't born. He doesn't die. He remains a priest forever, and his name is Melchizedek, which means that he is the high priest, which puts us in another conundrum, because if he is high priest, and it says, remains a priest continually, and we know that the Son of God is then called as high priest by God in the order of Melchizedek, that would mean we have forevermore two High priests. If it's not the Son of God. Both Yahushua and Melchizedek, which obviously cannot be true. Unless Melchizedek is Yahushua. And now we get back to the story in Genesis. So, what does Melchizedek serve? Abraham. So we're getting to that, that right now. So, verse 18 literally starts with, Then Melchizedek, then the king of righteousness, king of peace, king of shalom, brought out bread and wine. Bread and wine. No doubt, this is the Son of God, called as high priest, and he serves Abraham with bread and wine. He serves him with the Lord's Supper. 
And this is exactly why outside of time, this is where rather, let me rephrase, this is where outside of time really comes to its full magnificence, to its full beauty and to its fullness. Outside of time as a truth on its own is wonderful and magnificent, but it could just seem like a time travel trick, something very cool. But going to the scripture about the way he says, I give you the way he, he implements the, the Lord's Supper. Yes. The specific wording. That's why we. That's why we're going to read this quickly, because we we want to look at the exact wording when the Lord gives them the bread and wine. What is it for, and what does it represent? That's why it's important. Let's look at it. Okay, Matthew chapter twenty-six, verse twenty-six. And as they were eating, Yeshua took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, "Take." eat this is my body then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins okay we don't have to read the rest okay so just just look at the very simple picture here so when he gives them the lord's supper he says this is the my blood this is the new covenant. This represents, his blood represents the new covenant when he gives them the wine. The place where they're at, the occasion is the last time that an official Passover would be honored. They're at the Passover meal. So to answer your question, from the time that the Passover is implemented in Egypt, to this moment where the Lord gives them the bread and the wine, the Passover was a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God. And there they would also eat bread, unleavened bread, but they would eat the lamb. And the wine was a smaller part of the occasion, not representing that much. Now, when the Lord gives them the bread and the wine, He's replacing, He's cancelling or fulfilling the Passover and replacing the Passover with the Lord's Supper. And He very clearly says, this is the new covenant. And He says, do this in remembrance of Me. So it's partaking in His flesh. And we have taught on this, it's uh, very important when understanding the body and the blood of the new covenant. Now, why is this significant? Because now we have the Passover that's instituted by God Himself, Yahweh Himself. And from the moment that the Passover is given, it is the official way to commemorate or to honor and put your trust in the Lamb of God. Now He replaces that because He Himself is going to fulfill the Passover. But now, if we're looking at that, we see he's coming as the high priest, Yahushua himself, on earth before the Passover was, was even instituted to Abraham, the father of our faith, 
and he's serving him listen carefully he's serving him the new covenant because the bread and the wine is him is the moment when he institutes the new covenant the moment that he does that he is officially um, the 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 new covenant officially comes into what's the word I'm looking for um, not power, not authority, effect. Yeah, it's coming into effect the moment that he gives it to them. So what he's doing is he goes and he serves the new covenant symbols to Abraham. And that's why we said we can prove to you that Abraham was new covenant. It's also interesting that right after that, like immediately after that, God appears to Abraham and then cuts covenant with Abraham but remember he doesn't actually cut covenant with Abraham because he puts Abraham to sleep so Abraham brings all of the the sheep the goats the birds does everything and then God puts Abraham to sleep and God cuts covenant he says with Abraham but again Abraham is sleeping and then later we see that God continually refers to the covenant as his covenant that he made with Abraham so, so we see the flow of events that the Lord comes, serves him with bread and wine. So the priesthood coming to minister unto Abraham, the fulfilled covenant, right after God officially cuts covenant and so on. This is making sense. <clears throat> so, so now, let's connect it again with how do we witness and why would... Um, having Melchizedek as part of our framework be important in witnessing. Because we want to connect the beginning and the end of the Bible every time we endeavor to witness. And there's various ways to do this. So what we do, said was, we want to refer to the Book of Life. Because the Book of Life we see on Judgment Day in the end of the Bible. And it says that the names were written in the Book of Life before the foundation of the world beginning. Now we have Melchizedek where we can prove. Okay, listen carefully. This is how it works. So after Yahushua died on the cross and he was resurrected and he went up to heaven after that, after this, he now goes as the resurrected resurrected king of glory high priest. He goes out of that position and he goes and he goes and meet with Abraham. He cannot meet with Abraham out of any other positioning. He can only meet Abraham as high priest if he had already died and been resurrected. And that's why there's no way anybody can get around the fact that outside of time, his crucifixion and resurrection was true and finalized and in place before he created the heavens and the earth. When he created Adam, he had to already have fulfilled the law and perfected humanity in one man so that he could create us out of that righteousness. And that's why we created in God's image and likeness. It's just some image and likeness. It's the resurrected Son of Man 
resurrected, becoming the, uh, as the Son of God. So the Son of God becomes man. That Son of Man is resurrected. His body is no longer in the grave. He becomes the perfection. And all of us are raised in Him on the day of His resurrection. That's going to be spread out over time. But outside of time, that one day, one day is a very important concept. That's the day of judgment, the day of salvation, the day that we are all raised in Messiah. That's when all that ever will exist stand before the throne and they are divided into two groups. That day exists outside of time. Time only exists on our planet. Even right now, as we're sitting here, time does not exist on Mars, or Pluto, or the moon. Yes, the sun, sun's light will shine on it, and then on a different part of it. That doesn't matter. It's not time. Time is, time is only applicable here, not in the kingdom of God. So there, eternally, while the earth exists, because the cross has to exist, because the cross had to exist when he created Adam. Because he would, he would create Adam and Eve out of his resurrected image. Now it's difficult in the beginning to understand, but once you've got this in place, the entire Bible starts making sense. Because otherwise you have to do what Christianity did. They had to decide to hide Melchizedek in the back of the religious cupboard and make sure that nobody looks at it. Because the moment somebody says, there's Melchizedek, all their doctrine falls apart. So, why do we use this? Because if you understand Melchizedek, you can prove that Yahushua as the risen Son of God, met with Abraham and served him the new covenant. The curriculum that they use in every Bible school across the planet has just been proven to be erroneous, illegitimate, invalid. So we've now, we've now, proven that we have a mandate and a mission to go out there with the true gospel. Okay, why is this important? Why is this important? Because this links together with the book of life. And if we can reveal to the world that the names, our names, were written in the book of life before the foundation of the earth, and the foundation of creation is that God knows who is His, then we change the entire mindset of those of faith. Because Christianity is running out there saying, God loves everybody and He wants to save everybody. I'm just bringing this together. Why is it important that we can do this and that we do understand this? Because that message that God is trying to save everybody is, a, is sat Satan's agenda. Because if he convinces the world that God wants to save everybody, then at the same time, he's going to show the world that God is not almighty because, because God is not getting everybody saved. So he's standing in the back going, Ha! See? You say God is almighty, but he can't even save people. 
So the whole church world is trying their best to overcome sin and strongholds in their life, and they keep failing. They keep failing. And Satan is, so Satan's always got a back door. Every believer out there is vulnerable to the voice saying, man, see, you're not getting it right because it's not the right gospel. That's our mission. Are we, are we seeing why this is important? So now, if we can bend the timeline to what it's supposed to be, we can force a person just by gentle persuasion to acknowledge the fact that the idea of Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, cannot be correct. It cannot. Now, if that is not correct, then we can persuade them to accept that the Bible is God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. Because what Christianity has done is they said the whole Old Testament is now no longer applicable, so you kind of read it for the good stories and the one or two lessons you can get out of it, but it's not for us. It's not applicable to us. It's a lie. Remember what happens in the end of days. Lawlessness increases. You see, you see what Satan has done. On the one hand, he's, he's, he's convinced the Israelites that they can serve God without Messiah. Now, Messiah himself says, nobody comes to the Father except through him. Exactly. For them, the New Testament is a non-issue because they don't believe that he was actually the Son of God. So the whole, all the writings of Christianity, they think, they say it doesn't make sense to them. But it's because they deny the very proof that is given as Melchizedek is actually the proof to the Jews. Now, yeah. Now the fact that he serves him with bread and wine, and Yahushua does that, is proof. Now, to the two worlds, Satan has come up with the perfect deception for everybody. What we're saying is, this is why we want to witness like this. Because outside of time, putting the plan of God in its right perspective will bring an answer to anybody that you ever encounter, no matter where they're coming from. Yes. No, I just want to kind of round off the Melchizedek story. Can I do that? Mm. Or do you want to? No, go for it. Okay. So, um, so why Melchizedek is so important when it comes to outside of time is not just the fact that it might sound like it's important because <laughs> Yahushua can offer his protection, travel back, um, but that's not really the 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 importance of. That's not really the point of why this is important. So where outside of time really meets its fullness and where it becomes truly important is in the application of covenant, which is the answer to, to everything, which is really what you've been saying now. So, um, so we said earlier, so Melchizedek, as priest, comes and serves Abraham. 430 years later, the law, as we understand it in the Old Testament, and that covenant, the, the covenant of Mount Sinai, is going to be given. We see that in Galatians, Paul says that that covenant, that law, does not annul or replace in any way, it doesn't touch, it doesn't do anything to the covenant that was made to Abraham. Okay. But now, 
if that's true, then that means we have something that works like this. And this is why this is so important. So with what you're saying with the creation and that out of this perfection, the Son of Man creates Adam, it's not just that he creates us in the image and likeness of God, that is also very true. But what really makes the Melchizedek story so magnificent is the fact that this means that from the beginning, that priesthood and that covenant is already available, is already actually in effect. Okay, so the covenant, you can call it covenant, call it law. We said that the, the, um, the letter to the Hebrew church, Paul writes that the covenant, the priesthood has changed, and by extent the law has changed. But the law there can actually, we can read that with a priesthood goes a certain covenant. So if it's true that Jehoshua, out of his perfection, out of that creation springs forth, then that means that from here, that covenant already exists. So if we are looking at some kind of a linear timeline, that means that that covenant is spreading all across. Somewhere over here, the law is given and the covenant of Mount Sinai is given. And this runs parallel. It doesn't replace or affect the two don't touch each other at all. Okay. I'm not saying they are um, two completely different or you know, uh, not connected to each other at all. That There are details to that. But this is now running over here. And then we see that the temple is destroyed and in effect the priesthood must end. Okay. But the covenant that comes with Melchizedek, that spreads all across time. Now, how do we know that it does that? How do we know that it does this? Because if, if we only had, and this is why we started with the psalm, if we only had the two references of Genesis and that which Paul explains, then that would put Abraham under the fulfilled covenant, but that would then kind of isolate the covenant to Abraham. And the covenant being, being in existence, and now us as those who are in Messiah, that's applicable to us as well. The fact that King David makes reference to Melchizedek proves that the entire covenant is outside of time, all of the time. Why? So, three references in the entire Bible to Melchizedek. One in Hebrews, one in Psalms, one in Genesis. So when King David prophesies about the end and he makes reference to the Son of God being called as high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he does not have the Hebrews explanation of who Melchizedek is. Obviously he cannot use his own reference as a reference because he's writing it. <laughs> Which means that the only reference he has is that in Genesis. Now we might say, well, you know, he's a Jew, so obviously you know, maybe he had access to more scriptures or more explanations. No, because our Old Testament, as we know it, is the Torah and the Prophets. No different than what he had. We might say, okay, well, maybe, you know, in, like, legend, the, the Israel people, the Hebrew people might have, you know, talked about and there might have been more information. Wouldn't matter because this is all that we have that's scriptural. So how does King David know who Melchizedek is? And how does he understand that priesthood? Remember, the bread and the wine would not have, would not mean anything to King David where he is. The bread and the wine becomes more important later. So the bread and the wine itself would not be 
the hint or the revelation that King David receives to know who this is. So how does he understand who Melchizedek is and how does he understand that priesthood? It must be because it's his covenant. We understand that he is part of that covenant which means that he understands the priesthood that is ministering to him as Melchizedek, the son of God, the high priest. Because even though he's living in his time and he is under the Levitical priesthood as a Jew living in Israel, he understands that the true priesthood, the eternal priesthood that's ministering to him is that of Melchizedek, the son of God. And that's why he can make the two one in Psalm 110, as we see he does. And this becomes key because this proves that the covenant is not just given because otherwise the argument could have been, well, that covenant comes into existence here and the Lord, because Abraham is the father of faith and because the Lord has not been given, in his grace offers the covenant to Abraham as an individual over there. But because we see that King David prophesies and makes reference to it, we understand that the covenant in its entirety is true out of time for all time. And why is covenant so <coughs> why do we want to why would why would we want to take outside of time to covenant? Because there is no salvation without covenant. And if the covenant, the fulfilled covenant of God is true for all time, outside of time, then that means essentially there is only one salvation. And if we end back at one salvation, then we end up with this simple gospel. But it's not that simple when you start out looking at it. We see. So this becomes extremely important because Christianity has come up with the New Covenant. The Bible does talk about the New Covenant, but they use the word to come up with a concept where the New Covenant has nothing written. There's no commandments, there's no instructions, it's just love each other. That's the covenant they came up with. Just kind of, there's a blank page, as long as you love each other, you can figure out how to do it. Um, just try your best. And that's the idea that most modern uh, believers have of covenant. Undefined. And then they'll teach you in Bible school, there was this covenant, then that covenant, then that covenant, then that covenant, and then grace came, and now we have the new covenant. Ask them what it is, and they'll go, just love each other. <laughs> Sounds like you've got to have a flower in your hair to do that. Anyway, so... We uh, do this to show that the covenantal instruction of God hasn't changed. Yahushua very clearly said he did not come to cancel the law, but to fulfill it. And so we've got to understand that the covenant that is cut with Abraham is the same covenant that's applicable to us, that's governing us. The law has been fulfilled in him, but it was not cancelled. It can actually make a lot of sense if you get it right. Okay, so do you guys see that we've got to have the structure right in us? 